Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel. It's about the ninth book, I think, in the Old Testament, right after Judges and Joshua, before you get to First and 2 Kings. And if you don't have a Bible right handy, there's usually one at the end of the pew nearby that you're welcome to, to grab and make use of. First Samuel, we are, believe it or not... As of today, we'll be about 20% of the way through this book of 1 Samuel that we're uh, trekking through over the uh, the next couple of, of months. It's a book about kings, we saw. Uh, it certainly focuses eventually, as we'll get to it, on King Saul and on King uh, David. But ultimately, focuses on the living God as the one true holy king. And as we are walking through it, we've already seen how uh, God has been pleased to raise up for his purposes uh, Samuel as this sort of uh, last of the judges, first of the prophets, we might say, and how God has done a work there. Uh, we've also seen the opposite, how God brings down, brought down Eli and his family because they weren't recognizing God as the one holy sovereign king. And as we come into the last couple of weeks, chapters four, five and six, and look at chapter six today, we've we've realized that there's a a new character on the stage. There's a new lead actor in what's taking place. And it just it just has a brief role, just appears for a while. Sometimes you're watching a TV show or whatever, a movie, and this character appears just for a, a brief time and maybe have a significant role. And then they just go away. You're like, what happened to that guy? He was on the show for a while. Well, that's kind of what's happening here with uh, with an interesting character because it's not even a person. It's this Ark of the Covenant, this box, this sort of holy box that represented the presence of the Lord is this lead character for these these several chapters we've been looking at. And and this is the the the, uh, the, the end of that little segment, uh, chapter six, that we'll look at today. Uh, we've seen already in just this last couple of weeks that in chapter four, the Israelites wanted to defeat the Philistines. They'd lost one battle to them. They they were at least astute enough to realize that there might be some divine help needed. But the way they went about it was all wrong. They got this box, this holy box, this Ark of the Covenant, and, and they felt like if we had have that box sort of as a, as a voodoo doll, maybe as a little rabbit's foot on on the side of our, our belt loop as some pixie dust kind of maybe maybe we'll be able to to win this battle. We get God in our corner, get God in our pocket and we'll be able to win this battle. They were actually defeated. The Philistines then take the not only defeat them, but take the, the box, take this super weapon, you might say, that the Israelites had and take it captive. We saw last week what happened to the Philistines. They had this God called Dagon. And, and in, in the nighttime, when nobody was even around, the Ark of the Covenant, the power of God through it actually knocked down their 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 idol, their their God that they were worshiping and showed them his power. And then they were struck with these various tumors and so forth. And, and now they're, they're, they're kind of ready to be done with the Ark. <laughs> this is a this is a gift that keeps on taking. We're ready to send it, send it back. So, you know, you get the picture here. The the Israelites were hoping we're misunderstanding kind of God's power and how he works through this this thing of the Ark of the Covenant. They were hoping that it would do something that it failed to do for them. The Philistines were on the other side. It was doing to them something that they didn't want to have done. So everybody's learning this this Ark of the Covenant, just like a character in a movie or in a book, you, you know, as they interact with other people around them, you learn things, you learn realities. And this is true with the Ark of the Covenant as the people of Israel and the Philistines interact with this character, so to speak, the Ark of the Covenant. We're, we're learning things 
about how they relate to God, about how we relate to God and how and, and who who God is really in our lives. So all of this is uh, very helpful for us today as we come into chapter six and we see that the Philistines are ready to get rid of this uh, Uh, Ready to get rid of this Ark of the Covenant, but there's a few more lessons, particularly about God's holiness, that they have uh, to learn and that are going to be helpful for us today, too. So invite you to read along with me as I read uh, chapter six of first Samuel. It's a pretty interesting little little account. I'll skip over a couple of parts here and there. Beginning in verse one. The Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months and the Philistines called for the priests and diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? They said, the diviners said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return to him a guilt offering. Then you'll be healed. It will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to them? To him, they answered five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. There were five different Philistine groups for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he dealt severely with them? Did not did not did they not send the people away and they departed? Now, then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home away from them and take the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, place it on the cart and put In a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go on its way and watch. If it goes up on its way on its own, on its own land to Beth Shemesh, then it is he, the God of Israel, who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence goes on and describes how the men uh, did just what was stated in the end of verse uh, 12. It says that it neither turned to the right or the left. It goes up to Beth Shemesh. Look, look with me at verse 13. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping in their harvest, their wheat harvest in the valley. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark and they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. They split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites uh, took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were the golden figurines, set them upon the great stone. And when Beth, the man of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord on the day of the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Jump on down again to the last sentence of verse 18. It says the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And then the last few verses. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked at the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, 
Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord, brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. They consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark lodged at Kiriath-Jerim a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, uh, some names we're, we're not used to in these verses, some customs that are entirely foreign to us, and yet powerful truth for our lives today that uh, has the capacity to work your transforming grace and give us a greater vision of your holiness. And thus, Lord, bless us and glorify you. We pray that you'd help us to see these things in Jesus name. Amen. Well, the Waltz family of Allentown, Pennsylvania, discovered uh, tragically uh, some years ago that uh, just because you name your pet wild bear Teddy doesn't mean that you've done away with his natural, powerful instincts. Their uh, 350-pound bear that they kept as a pet turned out to be quite different than what they expected, was other than what they anticipated, more powerful, not so easy to tame as they thought, when sadly he attacked and killed 37-year-old Kelly Ann Waltz as she was cleaning up the cage. Interestingly enough, there is a section of the cage. There had been constructed a section of the cage, as apparently I learned this week is common for folks that own exotic pets, you might say, uh, where, where the animal can be placed while you're cleaning out the cage. But Kellyanne had not used that set apart area, that separated area on that particular day. Neighbors were summoned as quickly as they could, and one had a weapon and killed the bear, but it was too late. It's interesting when we think about it that part of figuring out how to interact with any being that we encounter in the universe is figuring out the characteristics of that being, what makes them distinctive, whether you're in a relationship with another person or an animal or, as it turns out in our passage today, the Lord. Figuring out what makes that being distinctive and especially figuring out the power that that being has. Think about it for a minute. We'll piggyback off our example. If a, if a little barking chihuahua runs into your yard and your little kids are out there playing, you hardly bat an eye, do you? Kind of a fun thing. If a Rottweiler shows up, different response, right? Because whether you think about it this way or not, in a split second, you and I are evaluating what's distinctive about that being and the power that that being has as well. Well, our passage today is pointing us in a similar fashion, I guess, to the power and the distinctiveness of 
of the one true God. And if you want to follow along in the sermon notes section in the back of your worship guide, there should be a main idea stated there. That's a short and succinct one this week compared to some others recently. And that is just this, that because God is the sovereign, holy one, the sovereign, holy Lord, that we should repent, believe and seek. You know, sometimes when we under, misunderstand characteristics about God, it, you know, maybe is not that big a deal. It's, a, it's just an, an accident to, or, or maybe for little ones that we see doing that. It's an opportunity for growth, even in, in the area of God's holiness. I remember reading somewhere, you know, some of those funny comments that little kids make and may, maybe your kids do or grandkids or, you know, kids of friends that you've got. You know, when they're talking about the Lord, this particular three year old was learning, seeking to learn the Lord's prayer. And you all remember how that Lord's prayer begins. This little child bowed uh, his head and said, uh, our father who does art in heaven. Harold is his name. As some of those mistakes are just, you know, opportunities to learn. But as we see in our passage, in fact, God, God reigns in heaven. Uh, he doesn't, he's not doing finger painting up there. He reigns in heaven. And uh, Harold is in his name. Hallowed is his name. There's something about God that is always set apart and always pure. That holiness, kind of a, it's a churchy word, this idea of being holy, but it always contains with it two different things. One uh, set apart, so distinctive, different, and uh, pure, righteous. That's interesting when you think about it, if you if you have a um, ladies, if you had before you a a string of, of lovely pearls on a necklace, they would be distinctive, special. Right. And uh, they'd also be pure. There'd be something there's sort of something beautiful about them, pure uh, because of how they're formed and so forth. But, of course, the Lord is not just distinctive and pure. He's also powerful. That's why I said he's, he's sovereign. He's also moving. He also has impact because of who he is. As we look at uh, these verses today, I think a way we should think about responding, really it's the way we ought to always be responding to what we know and understand about God, is along these lines. One of my fellow uh, pastors in town has stated it, it very well, very helpful for us, in describing the Christian life as a waltz. As a waltz. I'm not a dancer person. I'm sure that doesn't surprise you in the least. But uh, but the waltz apparently is a three step dance. And one of the challenges for us is that we have the tendency to shrink our Christian life down to just a one step dance or a two step dance. And we miss kind of all three steps. Uh, for some of us, the Christian life for us, as we see God, particularly in his holiness and in his righteousness, is just uh, repentance. OK, there's there's one step. We realize, oh, my goodness, there's, God is so great and amazing, and I know I'm not there, and, and I'm, I'm affected by my sin, and I, I want to change. Uh, hopefully, for many of us, we're also growing in, in at least a, a two-step dance of, of not just repenting, but actually believing. Particularly believing that God loves us tremendously in Christ, that he sent this righteous one to be our justification, to love us, to have us uh, be aware that we're adopted into God's family and cherished in his sight. So repenting and believing two step, that's better than the one step. But a three step dance also includes this third move, I guess you would say, 
And that is of of seeking, of fighting, of striving, of pursuing, however we want to describe it. That we have not only recognized we're off track and want to turn away from it, not only believe that God loves us and he can receive us even though we're off track, but then we want to move towards him. We want to glorify him, serve him in this world and seek him out. As we look at these verses today and meditate on these verses, it's interesting to see how those dynamics emerge from our passage. And we're going to look at four things. Uh, The first one maybe is the most uh, cumbersome, and then we'll move to some easier ones after that. But we want to look at how from this passage we see, even in the Philistines, that they're making what we call holy propitiation. Propitiation is a big church word for atonement, payment. Then we see how they receive a holy confirmation with this cart and what happens with this cart. The Israelites then, so that's the Philistines going to show us that. And then the Israelites are going to help us with the last two points, which is a holy celebration as the cart comes back. And then another holy demonstration that they deal with at the end. So I want us to to take a look at that today. The first thing is this holy propitiation. Look at verses one through five. These are people who are pagan folks. And yet they understand at some level That this divine being, that they're guilty, it says in verse 3, they get that they need to make a guilt offering. Their diviners and their spiritual people are telling them that. And and then it tells us down at the end of verse 5, this is fantastic, that, hey, God might show what we call grace. He might choose to lighten his hand from us. And that's a pretty picture of what grace is, isn't it? That God would just, he would choose to, to lighten, to not lay his hand as heavily upon us. As we deserve. It's interesting what they are told to send back as this offering, this propitiation uh, sort of sacrifice, isn't it? To make little gold statues out of tumors. That's sort of unusual. And then these little mice. It it almost seems strange. But think about it for a minute. Uh, Throughout the scriptures, it seems that God has this pattern of the, the sort of satisfaction for our sin being correlated to the consequences for that. And and we can think about it. I don't think it's any leap for us to think about what Jesus does today. What's the consequences that all humanity deals with because of our fallenness and sin? What's the one thing we can all be guaranteed of? We're all going to die, right? goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, death. So that's the consequence, kind of like these tumors that the Philistines faced. Well, how do, what is the satisfaction? How is that alleviated? What does Jesus do to deal with it? He dies. He does the thing that is the curse. And the scriptures even say he kind of becomes a curse for us. That's the same idea that at some level, the Philistines, even through their pagan diviners, they're getting here. Look with me, if you don't mind, turning over to Isaiah in, in the Bible. It's uh, further back in the Old Testament, closer to the New Testament. So first of the big prophets, Isaiah six, look with this at me, look at this with me and, and let's see. OK, so this holy propitiation, what do we learn then about repenting, believing and seeking about this waltz? Start uh, with me reading along as I read aloud in verse uh, one of chapter six of Isaiah it says in the year that King Uzziah died. This is Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim. These are these little sort of angelic beings. Listen to what they're each doing. Each had six wings. 
With two, he covered his face. You can't look upon God because he's so amazing in his holiness. With two, he covered his, his feet. You can't let your feet be exposed because they kind of symbolize. They get dirty when you're walking around the world. They're, they're a symbol of our fallenness and in, in humanity. And, and then with two, they were flying. You know, they're, they're special beings. So they're amazing. And they're flying around God. And what are they doing? They're declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And I said, listen, okay, the waltz. What's the first step in the waltz? Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. We don't know about Isaiah's whole pathway. We don't know all the things that he maybe struggled with. But the thing that's acute to him when he sees the holiness of God is something that maybe wouldn't even seem like that big a deal to you and me. It's what he says, how he uses his mouth. He's convicted about that. Because he recognizes that he's not where he should be and how he uses his words. Then it goes on in verse uh, six. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. That's that next step, right? To believe and to know that we've been forgiven, shown grace through Christ. Then look at verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here am I. Send me. And he's got a particular calling, a special calling, because he's a prophet of the people of God. But you see, okay, he wants to seek now. He wants to uh, draw closer and serve and glorify God in the world. He's repenting, believing and seeking. That ought to be our response as well. When we meditate on the holy Propitiation, the holy payment that's been made for you and me, this Lord Jesus Christ, who's taken death, the tumors that we deserve, and he's borne it for us. Second thing we see going back to jump on back there to first Samuel with me. Second thing we see looking at verses six through twelve again of chapter six is that the people receive a, uh, the Philistine people receive a holy confirmation. I mean, what's, what's the deal? Imagine being this UPS driver, right? Got to deliver this package. These cows got a bad, got a raw deal in this situation. You know, they get sacrificed at the end of the program. But what is all of this stuff about? Putting it on the cart and the people sacrificing and, and looking where it goes. It's really just this. The Philistines, um, they want some confirmation, of what we would call assurance, assurance of pardon, like we read about in our worship service. They want to know that all this bad stuff that's been happening to them because they've misunderstood God and mishandled the ark uh, is alleviated, is taken care of. It's a legitimate concern. And here's the interesting thing. You know, I, I'm a, a bent to be a sort of skeptical person. I lean that way. And. And I love engaging with and talking with folks, you know, and many of you who are visiting our church and curious about the things of the gospel and asking some tough questions. And I, and I love that. That is, a, that is not a bad thing at all. It's a good thing. We ought to be engaging and getting answers. Here's the interesting thing, though, about the Philistines. And we could probably say the same thing about folks off in sort of jungles in, in, in backwaters of the world today. We would think of them as sort of simple people. And this, the sort of modern, secular, informed, educated, 
American Westerner, we would, by default, think that we're a little more sophisticated than, than those folks in other places in the world, maybe in the jungles and backwaters, and, and maybe than the Philistines. Here's the interesting things. The Philistines get something that a lot of times we don't get, at least in our sort of secular uh, agnostic world. They get that God is directing what's happening to them. They understand that these tumors that they've had have been delivered by God. And so they're looking for him to direct this cart. And wherever this cart goes, that's going to be part of their assurance. Here's the awesome thing. You and I have a much better (laughs) and much surer and much clearer indicator of the assurance that we can have. That we're in Christ, that we're loved by him, that we have eternal life. And that's what we're going to you know, be celebrating in a couple of weeks as we come into Easter and Palm Sunday. That Jesus has accomplished this thing. What is the resurrection about? It's about him showing proof that he's delivered us. Just like that cart going back was proof that their uh, burdens, their punishment had been absolved. Same is true for us today. Third thing we see is that the people engage in a holy celebration. Look with me at verses 13 on down through verse 18. It's it's interesting. You see how, you know, these are just kingdoms right in close proximity, the Philistines. And so it's literally just going up a road. This cart is to get back into the land of Israel. But a lot's happening when that cart goes back. The people of God are getting back to them. Something that means so much to them. So they have this celebration and they sacrifice. And you see that they, at the end of verse 18, they even have kind of a commemorative place. They do that a lot, you read in the Old Testament. They, they know that they need to be reminded that they're probably going to forget later on. And they need to be reminded. So they designate this stone where we sacrifice these things as a, a special place for us. Uh, it's interesting As we think about that celebration, again, another passage in Scripture that I think charts this repent, believe, and seek is Psalm 51. Again, turn over there with me, if you would, Psalm 51. Psalms are pretty much in the middle of your Bible there. And uh, and Psalm 51 is an interesting one because it's maybe somewhat familiar to us. It's the psalm that David wrote. After he has come through this period of uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba. And then, if you recall, he not only does that, but then he he is uh, concerned about being found out related to this. So he gets Uriah's uh, husband and he's such a faithful soldier that he sleeps on his own front doorstep instead of going in and being with his wife. When he's called back from the front lines, he, he, he wants to kind of in that way be with his, his, his troops. And so he's sent back to the front lines and David makes sure that Uriah is on the front uh, of the battle and the other troops pull back so that he's killed. So in one foul swoop, if you think about it, David, king of Israel, Man after God's heart that we we know from the scriptures, that's true of him. He breaks every one of the Ten Commandments as far as I can track it. He's certainly not worshiping the Lord God only. He's definitely making an idol out of Bathsheba and his personal pleasure. He's taking the Lord's name in vain because he's the Lord's king and he's not doing what a king's supposed to be doing. Um, I'm sure he's uh, honoring his father and mother. I guess he's not doing that in there either. He's obviously committing adultery. He's becoming a liar. He's falsifying it. He's coveting. You just you name it. He's covered all the, the gamut. Listen to what he says in Psalm 51. He's been confronted. He's realized this. He's gone through this this sort of gospel waltz thing. Very first verse, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, 
blot out my transgressions. He ain't bringing something from his own, you know, I'll shape up. I'll get better, God. I'll fix this thing. No, you, God, are the only one that can help me. You're the only one that can do this. Jump on down with me. He says in verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Seems like, what's the deal? He sinned against all these other people. He had Uriah killed. Uh, Bathsheba, you know, essentially probably had almost no choice but to go along with the program. You know, all these things that he's done. He's failed his people as being their king. But he knows because he understands the Holy One of God, even though he forgot for a season who the Holy One of God is. He, He knows that he's offended God first and foremost. That's where his sin lies. So he's seeing that. But then he believes. He believes as we go on down to verse uh, uh, 9, 10, and 11. Hide your face from my sins. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit with me. Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Rejoice to me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He's believing that Christ has shown him that grace. And then if you look down at the last part of it, starting in verse 13, it says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. And he talks about the offerings that he'll offer and he'll seek to have a contrite heart. He's seeking. He's seeking after God. He's striving after God. He's going to fight to serve the Lord in this world. Last thing we see in these verses, and it's just a brief point for us today, is that uh, the, this is back in First Samuel. If you want to jump back there with me. Starting in verse 19, we see... That the, uh, the, the Israelites, they, they struggle. Maybe, again, you've been around little kids. I know with mine, you, you kind of pull them off to the side. They do something wrong. You correct them. And, and no matter how many times it happens, you're still shocked that five minutes later, 20 minutes later, two days later, right back to the same thing. Right? We had a big time out, had a big discipline, lost some privileges. Bam. Right back to the same thing. Israelites, same deal. They just saw what happened when they misunderstood how to use the Ark of the Covenant. They just saw what it did to the Philistines. They just saw the amazing work of God and bringing it back to them. And two seconds later, they've stepped away from the Lord and are already having to be reminded of his holiness. We say, man, what's wrong with those people? I'll tell you what's wrong with them. It's the same stuff that's wrong with, with you and me. You ever walk out of church and quickly find a way to sin on Sunday afternoon? In some form or fashion, I sure have, right? No, no sooner has that word of benediction been ushered, uh, given us a word of grace and reminding us at the end of the service how God loves us and shows his mercy to us that uh, we turn around and fly off the handle at our kids for something that, you know, we go overboard uh, for something maybe they've done a little bit wrong or speak a really harsh word to our uh, spouse that's not really deserving or to one of our friends. Uh, no sooner have we kind of seen the offering plates go by and maybe even put something into that offering plate and heard the prayers of gratitude and generosity uh, to, the, to the Lord that we, uh, that we run out and, and, and find something that we can blow a bunch of money on to fill up our hole spiritually in our soul or try to. Or try to keep up with the Joneses. So we kind of look like we're in a certain situation socially. Uh, no sooner do we kind of finish this time at the table here of communion and realizing how Christ has sacrificed himself and given himself for us that, you know, somebody asks us to do something and eh, we don't really want to spend the time. Right. Or we really need to forgive somebody and show them grace. And, and I, I just don't really feel like doing that. 
goes on and on. It's true for all of us. We walk out of this place and it's so easy for us to forget. And you see that the Israelites, it says there for about 20 years. It's interesting. For 20 years, they lamented. This meant they were they were kind of cognizant that they had messed up on that. I think it's probably a good thing. They they realize where they where they are Uh, spiritually for us today. It's this way. And maybe we can conclude with uh, with this. Um, I don't know how you all responded last two weeks to the weather warnings. Right. A couple of different days. I know my kids have just come to expect a late school day or a day off of school. Like uh, we're not going to go to school for a whole four day or a whole five days during the week. We're only going to go to four. So they kind of gotten used to it. We've had so many weather things this this year. But I don't know about you. I've handled a little bit different than I have in the past, especially me being sort of Yankee uh, born and bred. I, I, I've always sort of seen myself as above the running to the store, getting the bread and milk uh, frenzy. And, and it, I can kind of handle being out in the weather. But, hey, after Snowmageddon last year, we won't take a show of hands. But I know I walked four miles through snow to catch up with my wife in the minivan. Uh, it was crazy. Well, you know what's interesting? And think about this for yourself. I was more cautious this year. I responded in a different way. I had a meeting on Thursday. It was, supposed to, it was over on the other side of town, and I canceled things early. I got home. I was supposed to have a lunch, and me and the other lunch guy were like, we ain't going out. You know, we didn't try to play macho. Oh, yeah, I got the four-wheel drive. I can get out there. No problem. No. Like, let's skip lunch. Let's do it later. Because <laughs> you know? we had learned. We would grown through that. that. That experience had happened, and we saw something about it. We kind of turned away from that. We knew a little bit more about it. And we, we, we charted a new path. Same thing's true in a sense in these episodes in First Samuel. We're seeing things about God and we're learning to redirect our lives in light of, of who he is, of the things that we've learned. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to be people who are zealous to uh, repent, to believe your gracious love for us and to seek hard after you. And we thank you that you're worthy of all of that. And that you bring us to a place to do that because you are the sovereign Holy One. We praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen.